This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. All right. Well, got some really rough numbers. The U.S. posted a record for daily COVID-19 deaths. Fatalities surpassing 4,000 for the first time. Viruses surge contributing to the first drop in U.S. jobs in eight months. We talked about that, Tim, at the top of the show. London's mayor declaring it an emergency as the U.K. reported record fatalities. Germany also reported the most daily deaths since the start of the pandemic. Uh, and then we just talked about, you know, Joe Biden, president-elect, you know, starting to hear about how he will approach this situation. He is inheriting a challenge. Uh, 4,000, think about that for a second. That's 4,000 people who had friends, family, loved ones, children, parents. It's, this is awful. Right. And, you know, I always kind of do the like 4,000 times seven could be 28,000 in a week. Yeah. Um, just in our country alone. So let's get into this with someone who has been looking at this, uh, dealing with this from day one. Dr. Ian Lusbader, back with us as he is every Friday, clinical associate professor of medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center on the phone in New York City. Um, Dr. Lusbader, nice to have you back here uh, on Bloomberg. How are you? What are you seeing? It feels pretty ominous. It feels like that dark, dark winter is upon us, but how do you see it? What are you seeing? Yes, Happy New Year, Carol and Tim. Yeah, it, to you. Uh, it, it, thank you. It, it definitely um, is another wave of uh, infections and deaths. We did anticipate uh, after the, you know, the holidays uh, that there and the New Year uh, celebration that sometime over the last two to three weeks that we would be seeing another bump and surge in cases, and that's really what's been happening uh, in the hospitals and unfortunately with deaths as well. And I think uh, the vaccine rollout has been slower than anticipated. We can talk about some of the reasons that uh, that may be the case. Uh, obviously, that takes a little while to develop immunity, but certainly uh, that would have been helpful to, I think, slow uh, much of what we're seeing. And um, uh, so I agree. I think it is uh, worrisome and uh, uh, no clear break in the trend at this point, which well, is unfortunate. How does this trend break? Is it because of the vaccine? Well, is it because of the, the sad truth that more and more people will be infected and develop herd immunity that way? I mean, how do we get out of this this spike that we're in? You know, we have to continue, as as we've been saying and doing, with uh, masks, hand washing, uh, social distancing. But that's but not working. Really? You know, uh, it's exactly it, we're, the, herd immunity, the slow development, the painful way to develop herd immunity yeah. is having all these infections and surviving. Uh, we do have to remember that, you know, still it's it's somewhere in the range of a, you know, one percent or so uh, case fatality rate. So the majority of people do survive. Obviously, we see a lot of post-COVID syndrome with a lot of uh, long-term effects. But really, the vaccine is going to be the way to break this. And I think we may have to change our strategy, this sort of staged deployment that I think really isn't uh, working well. Well, let's talk about that, because we did talk about the president-elect Joe Biden says, saying he'll distribute more of the available doses, blah, 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 excuse me, let me slow down, the available doses of coronavirus vaccines. So reversing what the Trump administration had planned to do, they were going to hold back, in that second dose to ensure that they're available for people who've already had the first shot. Do you think maybe we have to back off of that? 
You know, I think the staged approach uh, on paper made sense, sort of the New York State, you know, 1A, 1B, these different tranches of people, healthcare frontline workers. You know, to me, that made sense initially. I'm getting my second shot uh, later today. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think it's worked well. Very few uh, problems with fever or chills or, or some aches. But when I speak to a number of other healthcare workers, uh, there's about a 30% uh, vaccine hesitancy. Why? Why is that? Well, in speaking to people uh, around me who are reluctant, they feel the vaccine's been rushed. They feel they don't want to be in the first group. Uh, they've heard stories, uh, incorrect stories, really, on the Internet of fertility issues or other issues. Some of these are young women who are nurses or medical assistants or techs. Uh, most of the physicians I know are on board and are hmm. happy to sign up. So I think, you know, maybe there's a, either a cultural element or, or just a, a fear of something new. But it is real. And even when you say to them, you know, you may have to go to the back of the line if you don't right. uh, take it now, they don't seem to be afraid of that. They're like, you know what, we don't want to be uh, – there are early adopters and late adopters, and there's a fair percent of healthcare workers, seemingly, that really are not early adopters. And because of that, I think we should be offering uh, vaccines to really anyone who wants them. I think it's a sin that we have – you know, hundreds yeah. of thousands of doses on the shelves. I see somewhere around 100 patients a week, and I would say 95% of them said at their visit over the last few weeks, if there was a vaccine available, please give it to me. And candidly, I think now in retrospect, we probably should be yeah. giving that to patients at the time of encountering. Tim, it's Tim has been like, yeah. every day he's like, poke me 10 times. Like, yeah, just, just give like, it to me. I'm walking around with the shirt sleeve rolled up, just ready for anyone <laughs> yeah. to give me a shot who has one. Dr. Lusbader, I've been thinking a lot and, and talking a lot with Carol about this too what life looks like on the other side of this pandemic. Because we really want to get back there. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I guess the question I struggle with is, are we ever going to get back to what things looked like, you know, in 2019 and 2018? Or, or are we going to be carrying around masks with us uh, for the rest of our lives? Well, I believe we will. I, I really think uh, this coming summer will look uh, normal, in, in my opinion. I think if we're able to get these vaccines out, and, and as we've said, this has really been more of a struggle than we thought with vaccine hesitancy and logistics and distribution. And we can talk a little more about that because I, I'm now of the belief that if we can have lines of cars for swabbing patients, and people that we should be able to be administering vaccines. And I agree, we do need to watch people for a bit of time. Although the experience that I've seen here in real life, the, the number of reactions within 15 or 20 minutes or even a half hour after the vaccines are really minuscule. So mm -hmm. I, I think there's uh, a lot less of those uh, concerns than, than we previously thought. But I do think once those vaccines are distributed, once we are towards herd immunity, either from infections, and we are seeing this surge, unfortunately, over the last few weeks and probably will continue over the next few weeks, I really do think by next summer, life can return to normal. So Psychologically, will people be wearing masks as they do in some Asian countries no matter what, whether they have a cough or a cold or something else? That, For some people, I think that may be part of their new uh, attire. But I think for most of us, we should be able to resume indoor dining and, and resume normal activities um, 
in around that time. I really do anticipate those vaccines being given out to everyone who wants them, certainly over the next a uh, few months uh, now, businesses and economic fallout that may be worse than we anticipated. But yeah. I think otherwise, from an infectious disease point of view, uh, I think life will should look fairly normal by next summer. Uh, the problem is how you mean this summer, this summer, or do you? Or this summer. Okay, twenty twenty one. That's right? an aggressive, but a bit, that's aggressive, but I, I like it. Yeah. Well, and the, and you getting know, warm again is going to help us too. Correct? If we warm, vaccine, all that stuff. Well, you know, there are a number of factors. We are seeing some new strains and some mutations. It does appear the, the vaccines, because they're this polyclonal, meaning antibodies to different parts of the spike protein, so far we haven't seen any mutations that seem to make it resistant to the vaccine. Theoretically, could that occur? We do know viruses mutate. Things like the flu virus, you know, need a new vaccine every year. We don't really think yeah. that we're going to need a new coronavirus vaccine every year. Uh, but I think the technology has been proven. I think this has shown us a few holes in our system. For one, I think we should have had a universal health record, right. meaning everybody should be on an electronic medical record so they can be called in when vaccines are available. Anywhere across the country, they can get a vaccine and see when their last one was. Um, I think we've seen really a lot of holes and areas of improvement, and I hope yeah. we address those. Hey, really quickly, because I know we're waiting for Joe Biden to uh, make some comments. Uh, listeners uh, writing me, could you ask the doctor you're interviewing if people can suddenly become reinfectious after having the virus? Just quickly, Ian, on that. Yes, it is a low likelihood, but they, we, that's why we do suggest even after the disease or vaccine, at least for a few months, people wear masks because you can swab their nasal pharynx and do recover some virus. So theoretically, even though they're immune, the patient's immune, either from the disease or from the vaccine, theoretically, they can spread it. So we do advise masks, at least for the near future. They can spread it, but can they get it again? Like it. Very unlikely. Very, very unlikely. It, it, those are uh, literally a handful of cases. Uh, I would feel very safe after the vaccine or having the disease. Some people do lose antibodies, um, and there have been a few cases of getting reinfected. Very uncommon. I, I wonder about the idea of the mutations. Does that is it, it even though we're seeing these mutations very briefly, um, can you get reinfected with a different mutation? Yes. I mean, that mm. can happen, but it appears that you're not as sick. In other words, you may have that virus or be, there's a difference between infection, illness, and then transmitting that as well. So people may get infected, but it is unlikely for them to get ill because you have some antibodies which do provide right. some infection, which is also the rationale even for one shot. It should give you a decreased severity of disease if you yeah. get that. These are the questions everybody's asking. Uh, Ian, we'll you're the best. Um, have a good, safe weekend. Really appreciate it. Happy New Year once again to you. Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center on the phone in New York City. He ticked off a lot of questions for me, too. That was great. <laughs> this is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. When we speak about the Biden administration, so many things that will be on his plate when he hits uh, when he hits the White House day one. 
what to do to about $1 trillion in student debt. It's just one of those many things that will be on his plate. Writing about it and reporting for Bloomberg Business Week is Ben Holland, Bloomberg News political economy editor on the phone in Bethesda, Maryland. Also here, Bloomberg Business Week editor Jill Weber on the remote line from Brooklyn. So, you know, Jill, we've been just watching this number go up and up over the last few years. It's a big one, and it's problematic for students who do have student debt. Yeah, it's a 1.7 trillion. That's that's the number um, for student debt in the country right now. And so we're gonna very see, um, very very quickly see uh, President Biden step in uh, to office, and among other battles um, that await him, from getting vaccines out to dealing with uh, the Trump legacy, this other one, the the trillion dollar uh, problem that is student debt, is gonna immediately come to to become like probably headline news, I think. Mm. Um, and and the tension here is on one side, you've got people who say this would be a huge boon for the economy just to, to really write off more debt um, and, and give people a clean slate in some, in some cases. Um, and on the other side, you have people saying, look, that's just going to benefit the wealthy. There's no, re- there's no reason to do it. And so there's been some pushback. And that's what Ben sort of dove into. So, so Ben, there's two, two sides here, a huge pile of money of debt that, that's weighing on um, the economy theoretically. So, so what is the way to think about this issue? And, and what, do we, what can we expect from President Biden? Well, I think we can expect... Uh, President Biden to do something about this very early on. I think he has no choice but to do something because as things stand, the pandemic freeze on this stuff that means nobody has to make payments and interest doesn't accumulate is going to finish at the end of January. And there is no way that the Biden administration will want people to have to start repaying those debts um, in February. And so they'll have to, at the minimum, like extend that freeze and if they do that, I guess it would give them more time to figure out a more lasting solution. Hey, within the Democratic Party, there's, there's certainly people who say, yeah, let's forgive a whole trillion dollars of this. You know, we should be $50,000 per person. But there are also people who say, look, is this the policy we want to do right now? Because it's going to benefit college grads. They tend to be better off. And the people who are really hurting now are lower income workers who've lost their jobs and who mostly don't have degrees. So, so Ben, what is the the naysayer take on this? I find really interesting because it, it would seem to me like, okay, just this debt is just sitting out there. Let's just c- cut some of it and get rid of it. But why is the case that we might not want to consider that solution? Well, I think part of the argument, which is often the case with arguments about kind of debt forgiveness type policies, you had it with the um, with the debate. Of, mortgage write-downs after 2008, and it's really an argument about fairness. And there are two sides of that. You could say that writing off debt is unfair on people who did go to college but did pay off their debt, and you could say it's unfair on people who didn't go to college, because why divert the resources to those families that are relatively better off? And I guess the way that supporters of the policy would reply to that second point as well you know we're not saying this is the only thing the government should do of course the government should help people who don't have degrees but meanwhile you have 40 million plus people out there who are really under order on this stuff and it's and you know by cutting the losses you're doing the economy a favor in the longer run ben this disproportionately uh, affecting young people millennials especially hard hit by student loan debt take us through what 
has happened over the last 15, 20 years that has just caused this to balloon out of control and, and whether or not this problem is going to continue. Because if you get rid of student loan debt now, I mean, you're not really fixing it if you don't address the cost of, of college in the future. Exactly. That is certainly true. Yeah, that's certainly true. So I think the, the reason it kind of snowballed is, is partly because colleges raised their fees and it tends to be easy for people to raise the price of things when people are paying for that thing in credit and credit is easy to come by. We saw that with the housing bubble before 2008, too. And it's partly because you know, in the last 15 years or so in America, on the whole, household you know, wages, household incomes have not gone up all that fast. So you have rising college fees and you have incomes that are not rising all that fast as a recipe for debts that can't be paid. And then you have one other issue that is people who simply taking out loans and then never finishing their degrees. There's a surprisingly large number of people like that. So I do wonder what kind of momentum do you think, Ben, is ultimately out there? I mean, Joe Biden and team, they're going to hit, you know, the ground running on so many different issues. We were just talking with Dr. Ian Lusbader over at NYU Langone about, you know, how we need to speed up the rollout of this vaccine and the access uh, for masses here in the, in the country if we really want to hit herd immunity. So how likely is this going to be a priority uh, in the early going? I think it's very early on. It's not going to be the priority, but as I said, I think it's a priority for them to make sure that nobody has to suddenly start making their student loans. Right. Things stand. They will do. So they've got to do something. They've got to, at the very least, extend the freeze. And that gives them a bit more time. And I think then push back the question of whether to forgive Got it. He did run on forgiving 10K, so I think Ben, we have to jump in because the man of the hour, President-elect Joe Biden, is actually making some comments. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Let's see what Irina Novoselsky is seeing. She is CEO of Career Builder, which for more than 20 years has been helping global companies hire global workers. She is with us once again on the phone in New York City. Uh, Irina, nice to have you here with us. So what are you seeing? Are, what you're seeing, does it jive with what we saw from that monthly jobs report? Very much so, Carol. You, you said it best, and you said we're all waiting and looking for the vaccine rollout and the stabilization of COVID, as that's a key catalyst for getting the stability in the jobs markets. We started to see some of the recovery happen uh, in the summer months and going into fall, and really with this wave around the holidays in November and December, and and now in January, we're going to see this this sluggishness of the job recovery right now. How long does this sluggishness stick around? I mean, is this just a question of when the virus goes away, we will we will see a recovery? I mean, what did it tell you over the summer when certain states and areas did get the virus under control and we saw improvement? Yeah, it's interesting. In the summer, when you, you saw some states and some cities pop up, we generally saw pretty good, healthy recovery. One of the things that we're seeing now was because this, this wave of so many more people are being impacted employees at companies are being impacted at a much higher level than they have been before, which is impacting productivity. Mm. But what we're also seeing is the start and stop behavior in the HR function. If you think about what's been happening in the HR functions is they have slimmed down because of COVID. They have really been in austere conditions. And now all of a sudden, we get the go, let's hire green light. And so they're left with a very reduced staff trying to staff up an entire organization. And then very quickly, it's, it's a stop when the pandemic bubbles up in certain cities and states. 
And so the start and stop has really forced companies to go to third-party resources to, to help them sourcing. It's one of the biggest jumps in our business that we've seen with HR departments looking for help. HR, that is interesting, right? Like I do wonder where the bottlenecks are going to be. I know as we've gone through COVID, we've heard from CEOs who said, you know, I'm worried too about my employees big time getting COVID and then I'm looking for workers in order, especially if you're someone who has figured it out, whether it's a e-tailer or restaurant that is, you know, everything is pickup and delivery. Like you've got to make sure you've got the workers to meet the demand there. So I do wonder kind of where the bottlenecks, you know, will be. What again are you hearing from some of your clients about how maybe this all plays out over the next couple of months and what, what are the key factors? I'm assuming it is vaccine. I'm assuming it is those virus numbers coming down. Yeah, it's everything that you would expect, Carol. But what we're seeing also is this parallel effect of the unemployment numbers that we talk about on a weekly, monthly basis. But for the existing employees, companies are also spending a lot more time on navigating that. So one of the things we talk about a lot with our clients right now is culture, especially with all of the news happening around us. How do we really help create this protective layer for our employees to keep them focused and positive and and have a place to have some positivity in their work life and, and not see everything that is happening around us, whether it's political and health and and just all the the return that we're trying to build into our economy. And a lot of what we're seeing is tools of engagement for employees, culture building tools, brand building tools. And so that has been spiking for us. And then the other thing that we're really seeing, and it's exciting to see that this conversation is continuing, and it's around diversity. It is not a one-trick pony where we've seen historically where people talk about it and it dies out. We're continuously seeing companies talking about it. And one of the things that we're so excited, given the diversity of CareerBuilder, is to help our clients power up and pipe for diverse talent. And so what they're doing now is actually building a pipeline so that when that Hallelujah, right? Because that's what it comes down to. (laughs) It's time. Definitely. And it's time. And you, you know what? It's more than a conversation we're now seeing our clients take action. They're asking us, how do we get access to the diverse talent? How do we recruit for the diverse talent? And sometimes it's it's materially changing hiring practices. One of the things we are advising is to start looking for skills and not Mm -hmm. experience because a lot of times when you're focused on 100% experience, you're hiring the same person for the same role over and over again. That's a really good point. Hey, listen, thank you so much. And thanks for going with the flow with us today as we were covering President-elect Joe Biden. Really appreciate it. Uh, Irina, have a good weekend. Irina Novoselsky, she is Chief Executive Officer, Career Builder, joining us on the phone in New York City. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Hey, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, folks, just about 11 minutes to go until we get to the final trading day and the final closing bell uh, for the first full trading week of 2020. Let's get to our Drive to the Close guest. Jeff Crumpleman is back with us, Chief Investment Strategist and Head of Equities at Mariner Wealth Advisors, based in Cincinnati, joining us on the phone from there. Jeff, first of all, 
Happy New Year. Nice to have you here with Tim and myself. How are you? Uh, doing well. Happy New Year uh, to you as, as well. I hope uh, things are going well in the new year in New York. Yeah, fingers crossed. It's already been uh, safe to say a tumultuous week, as you well know. Um, how do you, you know, Jeff? Um, yeah, we turned the calendar page, but a lot of the old problems are still with us, right? You know, COVID, of course, and trying to get the vaccine out, and we're all just kind of keeping our fingers crossed that we get to some kind of normalcy at some point in 2021. How do you see it, and how does it ultimately, you know, impact companies, the economy, and ultimately the financial markets? Because we continue to see this disconnect where there's some pretty terrible headlines, and yet markets have often rallied. Yeah, I do. there is a disconnect between the headlines and, and the market, and yet there's not that much of a disconnect between the economy and the market. The economy has continued uh, to recover, and I think that it's the earnings and, and credit spreads and interest rates uh, that are the things that we, you know, really monitor and that drive the market. And from a hu- human nature or, you know, just a human standpoint, you would have hoped that, you know, the news would be about vaccine introduction and, you know, on uh, onward and upward here, as opposed to seeing the Capitol and some of the things that just happened the other day that were absolutely shocking. And so there's there's uh, depression from a, just a, you know, a, a human standpoint from that. But with regard to the economy, as we've seen it many times before, and we certainly saw it going back into March of last year, headlines about pandemics and COVID spread, and yet we are up 18% roughly in 2020, and who would have thunk that? And it was right. because, you know, the market's forward-looking and it's all recovery. And, and that is actually why we maintained that hold-your-ground view and we maintained our stock uh, price target levels um, for the S&P 500 when many were taking it down <laughs> because we just we look at the data. Well, and, uh, and that's what drives us. Well, speaking of that data, we did see the job recovery falter today as the virus surge just snapped the hiring streak. Um, how did your opinion change, Jeff, about the recovery when you saw that news this morning of the jobs report from December? Well, actually, you know, it's kind of mixed information. You had, um, you know, numbers that were revised up for the prior two months, and they pretty much offset the disappointment for this month but our expectations are really for a soft q1 anyway we're in the midst of kind of a a soft patch in here where the vaccine has not been distributed in mass scale Um, there was a little hesitancy to know what would happen with fiscal stimulus and would that come about and while ceo confidence has been improving uh, we expected a bit of a, a softer patch here in q1 before you do get um, kind of continued and accelerating improvement throughout the remainder of the year. And at the end of the day, because of some pretty other solid economic numbers, earnings numbers, earnings are expected to be up 20% over this next year, and I do think that we'll deliver there or close to it, mm. you're going to see a pretty nice, I think, um, year for the market. Not dazzling returns, not yeah. stellar returns. But to see high single-digit returns, including dividend, um, that's kind of what you know we're, we're looking at. Hey, so Jeff, and, Jeff, where yeah. where would you be putting money? Because I know our audience loves to hear specifics, and I was looking at some of the stocks sure. that you shared with us: Starbucks, Target, specifically. 
are some yeah. of the names that are up on your list. Talk to us about kind of your investment thesis and where you would specifically put money right now. Yeah, I think positioning is really key in here. And um, we felt good about it last year. Many, many people are saying, hey, run to value, run to the cyclicals. And they're, they're making more heroic, extreme kind of recommendations on where you should go. And we just don't think that, that that's probably the thing to do. We still think a blend of growth and value. So we have a bit of what you know people would call a barbell strategy. We're maintaining our growth positions and examples of stocks that we see in that growth camp. It's not, it's not just FANG. We have exposure to the FANGs. We've reduced them a little bit after some success there. And it's, it's uh, stocks like uh, 2.6, which uh, makes silicon carbide that is used in um, you know, making the wafers and the chips that uh, require uh, greater and greater um, just really uh, speed and efficiency for power management and so on and so forth. Names like Micron Technology, uh, which makes memory chips used as, as a cloud is built out and we move um, to, to more and more data center and cloud-oriented applications. Um, we like uh, also within technology, um, Vive, Viva is the, the name of the company. It's a healthcare software company that just dominates uh, the CRM component within healthcare and uh, software that's used to manage all these trials that are going on for the vaccines and drug development and so on and so forth. Right. And we find uh, when, when the cyclical camp, too, by the same token, um, we like, uh, you know, names such as um, L3 within the defense area, Federal Express. And, and so we think that you ought to really have balance between those two right now. Yeah, so. Yeah, Alibaba's on this list, too. Why, why Alibaba? And just got about 30 seconds. 30 seconds, I'll try and make it quick. Alibaba is just really, hey, you know, sometimes things get cheap and they get too cheap. And, you know, this might not be um, for the, the, the meek and timid, if you will, at this point in time, but it's trading at less than 19 times earnings when the S&P 500 is trading at 22 times. It has expected growth rate at 23 times. And we just don't think with uh, the Chinese government, yes, you know, they're playing a little tough and would like to quiet Jack Ma down just a little bit. But they also want to court and see Western uh, investors um, right. really continue to invest uh, over there. And so we think that this is a good entry point. Stock's down about 25% since it's uh, October high. So we've definitely seen it pull off its uh, best levels uh, of the last six months or so. Um, Jeff, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Jeff Crumpleman, Chief Investment Strategist, Head of Equities at Mariner Wealth Advisors on the phone in Cincinnati. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.